Would you pray with me, please? And, and I think that song is, is a prayer uh, unto us, especially today. Father, in the holy name of your Son, Jesus, we ask you to be present with us as we open your word. I pray that you give us, Father, the, the courage, the intention, and the will, Father, to, to listen and to hear what it is you have to say. My Father, be exalted that in all ways we would seek to please you and only you. Be exalted, Lord, I beg you. And speak through me your holy word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, would you open your Bibles, please, those of you that, that have brought uh, their Bibles? Would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the first of the Gospels? And uh, chapter 5 of, of the Gospel. Chapter 5, which is where we have the beginnings of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a sermon on discipleship. And I, I always say to everyone, every time I speak about the Sermon on the Mount, if you ever want to get the temperature of your Christianity, read the Sermon on the Mount. It will tell you whether you are cold or whether you're warm. And if you have a listening ear and an open heart, it will heat you up for the Lord. So if you ever want to know how you're doing as a disciple of Jesus, go to the Sermon on the Mount and read it. And so that's what we are doing a little bit uh, uh, here today. Last week, uh, Deacon Diane had the opportunity of, of talking to us and addressing us, and she kind of introduced uh, the portion that we are dealing with uh, here in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what would be properly understood as radical discipleship. I mean, this is not discipleship like you sit at the feet of a, of a pastor or you sit at the feet of a teacher and, uh, and they teach you the Word, or, or they encourage you. Uh, this that Jesus is talking about is extreme radical discipleship. This is not human talk. This is godly talk. And so if we want to be like Jesus, we need to open our hearts to what it is that Jesus is challenging us Two. So this is what I call radical discipleship. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is talking about, it needs to be framed on what he has to say on verse 20 of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means... Basically, when you translate that from the Greek, it, it reads, you will know, never not, and, and it's very repetitive that he really means this. By no means will you enter the kingdom of God. So I think it's very important for us to understand at the very beginning, what are we talking about when we talk about righteousness? I mean, if, we, if our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, we need to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say, and, and, and what do we understand as righteousness? And righteousness, righteousness more than anything, and in simple terms, righteousness is to be right with God and with man. Very simply stated, that's what righteousness is. Righteousness is the right attitude and the right stance of our hearts and the right practice of our faith in the presence of God and of mankind. In that order. Because there's no way you can have righteousness in the presence of God and not automatically be righteous in the presence of man. But you can be right in the presence of man and not be right in the presence of God. Because man values differently than God. So you may be right, acceptable, loved, you know, all of these things before man and still fall short of the glory of God. But you will never be righteous in heart and practice with God and before God and not be righteous before man. So righteousness is the right attitude of the heart and the right practice of our faith in the presence of God and the presence of man how we live our lives and practice our faith before God and before man. One of the things that is very important that you understand to frame what Jesus is talking about is that at the time of Jesus in the first century, there were four primary religious groups all of them with a different set of righteous levels. The Sadducees were a group of religious leaders that basically went along with the status quo of, the, of, the, of, the, of Judaism. And primarily, they were a group that got along rather very well with the Roman the Roman usurpers or the Roman governors, they were religious, but the reality is they didn't want to rock the boat. 
So they basically just got along, believed what they wanted to believe, rejected the resurrection, didn't believe in angels, they had their own set of beliefs, didn't matter what scripture said about these things, they just wanted to be left alone, they didn't want to cause any problem with the Romans, they just wanna, they wanted their property safe, and they, they were religious. Okay? But that's about as far as they went. Then you have the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, who after the exile to Babylon or from Babylon back, they decided that they wanted to so keep the law so that they never had to be punished again into exile. They're very strict about the law. So strict that they read the commandments of God and they want to make it minutia. They want to control every aspect of it. And so they add a number of other rules to it to, uh, to help the people. They had good intentions, but they wanted a righteousness by works more than anything else. It was the righteousness of works. And so they kept adding stuff to control how far someone would walk on the Sabbath before it became a breaking of the Sabbath. It couldn't be more than a mile. If you lit a candle on, on Friday, you couldn't shut it off on Saturday. I mean, they had so many rules that they themselves wouldn't keep, but they wanted the people to keep it. Then there is a group called the Essenes. The Essenes were so against the normal way in which the Jews were doing things in Jerusalem, the worship of God, the behaviors, the practices, they were so contrary to what the Sadducees and the Pharisees were doing that they decided that their response was to separate from the world or separate from Jerusalem area, the Judaism of Jerusalem, and create their own way of life by the Dead Sea, in the caves of the Dead Sea. And they had a higher level of righteousness than the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They wore white all the time to show their purity. They all ate a common meal, served in such a way that no one ate more than another. They didn't have property that each person had. But in the second or third year of joining the group, you would turn over all your property so that everyone had what everyone had. All the same. They had many rules when it came to baptism, when it came to, uh, to eating the meal. Uh, they wore loin clothes. Because the word of God said to not be naked under the robe. Pharisees and Sadducees didn't have the same rules. But they had loin. I mean, they had so many things because they wanted to be so pure. And they would not be caught dead in Jerusalem at any of the Jewish feasts. Because they had their own way of celebrating their feasts. And they were really seeking the kingdom of God. And really interpreting well the word of God. The commandments of God. I'm not saying that they were better than anybody. They just had different ways of measuring their walk with the Lord and their righteousness. And then there was Jesus. Then there was Jesus who sometimes his righteousness 
exceeded the righteousness of all these groups. There are things that Jesus calls us to in the Gospels that are way higher and more of the heart than of the doing part. Jesus speaks about wealth in a way that is similar to the Essenes, but higher than the way the Essenes looked at it, and certainly different than the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Jesus dealt with the poor differently. Jesus certainly pointed people to the heart more to what they did outside of the heart. Jesus' righteousness sometimes superseded the righteousness of all these other groups. And this is one of those passages in, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is calling his disciples to a higher level of righteousness, a higher level of heart standing before God than any other group in the area. Therefore, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Last week, Diane helped us take a look at some of the the righteousness of Jesus as compared to the Ten Commandments. Okay, he dealt with three commandments and she, she helped us see that. The first commandment was, you heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill. Jesus says, if you even get angry with your brother and you call him stupid, or you call him you fool, or raka, or the, the, the different choice of words we all have, because all of us have an arsenal, all you have to do is, I, 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 if, if you can put a microphone in my car when somebody cuts in front of me, you'll have some of those. Okay, and, and if I put one in yours, I'll probably add to my list. <laughs> Jesus says, if even you get angry at your brother, angry enough to call him names and insult him, you've already committed murder in your heart. What Jesus is actually saying is, here is the law that God gave I say to you, step back and see what's in your heart. Step back and look at the motivation. Because if you don't control the motivation, you are more likely to break the actual law of God. That's what Jesus is talking about. Look at the intent of your heart. Look at the intent of your soul. If you are able to be angry enough with your brother you have already committed adultery, or you have already killed in your heart. And then he comes and he quotes the second commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. He says, if you even look at a woman and you lust after her in your heart, if you have feelings that you would love to lie with her when she's not your wife, And the same thing goes for women toward men. If there's lust in our heart in any way toward another human being who's not our husband or our wife, he says, you, by intention alone, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And then number three, which is the uh, 
the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. He says, you heard that it was said, you shall not bear false witness. I say to you, uh, don't swear by anything. Don't swear at all. If your integrity is not good enough for your word to be accepted at your word, you don't have to swear on your mother's grave, which is what we do, amen? You don't have to swear on your children's life. You don't have to swear on God. You don't have to swear on the Bible. If your integrity is good enough, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And whoever doubt your integrity, let your deeds speak for you. When they find out that you spoke the truth, they will owe you an apology. But you do not need to swear at all, and especially on God. You don't even swear on your own head because you have no control over your own life. Jesus' standard of righteousness is higher than the standard of righteousness of mere human beings. Today I want to look at two more beyond what Diane went through last week. Now, one of the things to understand is that the two that we're going to deal with today really have nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. Uh, The previous ones I mentioned, yes. He begins by saying, you heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, it was probably a saying that was used quite common among the Jewish people. We even use those same terms, don't we? We sometimes use those same terms, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, you deserve what you got because you did it to somebody else. The reality is that that is is found in Scripture. A tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But it's not found the way it's taken out of context. It is in Scripture as a reference to the judicial system of Israel that called for justice at a court level, not at a private, vengeful level. The idea that God was teaching the Jews is that you kill somebody, your life could be taken. If you kill somebody's horse, your horse should pay for that horse. If you negligently cause somebody's eye to be plucked, your eye should be plucked. In other words, the teaching was that as you did negligently evil toward another person, you should expect that the justice of God is that it could be done to you and you should be careful what you do to others. It was a court justice saying, not a personal reciprocal, vengeful way of people acting toward one another. But it was taken out of context from the judicial system and applied to the individual. You do something to me, I'll do you too. You hit me once, I'll punch you harder with a two by four. 
And that's how we even use it today, don't we? As an excuse that if someone does something to us, it is just that we reciprocate by an equal or worse blow. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is fair. Here you go. Pow! (laughs) But that wasn't the intention of Scripture when those words were spoken. Jesus says, you heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And you all may be quoting it that way, but I want to say to you, that the way of my disciples is not judicial or not retribution. The way of the disciple is not retribution. On the contrary, Jesus said, if someone hits you on the cheek, on the right cheek, No retribution, no excuse to retribute damage to someone else. No excuse to to pay back what somebody did to you. No excuse for my disciple to act in evil manners because somebody acted in evil manner toward you. No excuse, no permission. If someone hits you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one. If someone sues you for your outer coat, give him your inner coat. If a soldier or somebody in authority forces you to carry his sword, his shield, and his things for one mile, go with him too. You are not to act in vengeance, in retribution with anyone. Jesus is not advocating inaction. In fact, he's not even advocating cowardice. Because it takes a lot more courage to turn the other cheek than to punch somebody back. It takes more integrity. It takes more courage. It takes more Christ-likeness, because that's what Jesus did. To not retribute to those that hurt you. To rather choose to act like Christ than to act like the world would want you to act. The world values and Christ values are totally opposite, and they miss each other. And Jesus is calling those who follow him to act like he acts and not like the world and human nature would want you to act. Jesus is establishing a bar of discipleship and of righteousness that no human being can attain by themselves. Jesus sets the bar to the righteousness that gets you to the kingdom of God. Not inaction, not cowardice, nor surrender of the principles by which you live. He's rather advocating from those that follow him to nonviolence. You stand your ground... 
but you do not act in violence toward another human being. Jesus never gave up who he was and what he came to do, but he accepted what was done to him in the worst of ways. No violence from his followers. Non-resistance. Non-aggressiveness. Aggressiveness should not be our part when we act toward another human being. No anger, no vengeance, and no getting even. Now, that's a tall order, isn't it? Jesus is calling us to a level of righteousness, a level of being in the presence of God that makes the world ashamed of their values and their systems. He's calling his disciples to a higher level of righteousness and of faith and of pleasing the Father. No retaliation, no vengeance, no aggressiveness, but rather forgiveness and generosity of heart and generosity toward those who in need ask of you and they have a need and your heart needs to be open to others. It doesn't matter how many times someone asks from you, If you have the ability to help, you need to help. Because that is the way of Jesus Christ. And that's what he expects of his disciples. The second part is that he says, You heard that it was said to the men of old, You will love your neighbor, but you will hate your enemies. Well, the first part is in the Bible. You will love your neighbor as yourself. The second part is nowhere in the Bible. There's no place in the Bible where God tells his people, hate your enemies. No place in Scripture. But it is so easy to understand how that message gets part of the culture, don't you? You know, it seems reasonable. Love your neighbor, but those that hate you, hate him back. Right? It just, it just becomes natural part of our humanity. Love those who look like me. Love those of the same nationality as you. Love those of the same faith as you. Love those of your same color. Love those of your same language. Love those of your same sexual orientation. Love those, but hate everybody else. Especially the Gentiles, and especially the Romans... Let's just hate the Romans. They're oppressing us. They take our taxes. We live in poverty because of them. 
Love your fellow Jews, but hate everybody else. That may have been a common saying in, in, in Jerusalem and among the Jews. Hey, that's the way we have it today ourselves. That's why we have discrimination. Because we love those that are like us, and we hate those that are not like us. You see, this last part about hating, I don't think God ever calls anyone to hate anyone. It's not in Scripture. God is not a God of hate. And therefore, His disciples must not be people of hate. Jesus advocates for love of your neighbor. But He also advocates for you and me to love even our enemies. Those who take from us the coat. Those that slap us in the cheek. Those that persecute us. Those that hurt us. Whoever wants to act evil against you, at no point is Jesus giving permission for us to act evil toward them. He's setting the bar high for his disciples to have a different way of life than the world around it. Love your neighbor and love your enemies. Love those that hurt you. Love those that speak evil junk against you. Love those who criticize you. Love those who in any way have hurt you in the past or may hurt you in the future and act vengefully toward you. You do not pay back with vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Our lives as disciples of Jesus raises us beyond our natural instincts. The level that Jesus wants to bring us into, the maturity in, in, as disciples that he wants us to have, causes all of us uncomfortableness, challenge, stretching, pain, sorrow, confusion. And yet the Word of God, the Word of Jesus, is one that is given to us that we may grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ and be perfect as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Now, we will never reach that perfection. But the idea is that I don't think Jesus intended us to be perfect but I think he was telling us that if we are sons and daughters, we better look like our father. We better act like our father. We better mature into what God wants to produce in us. And not the world. The world wants us to imitate them. Jesus is setting the bar high of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You heard that it was said, but I'm telling you, says the Lord, that this is what I expect from you. Let me tell you this in form of application. Listen to me carefully. In form of application. The bar 
should never be said by man. Don't follow me. Unless I'm following Jesus, don't follow me. I'll lead you wrong. Your greatest teacher that you admire, every book you buy about this person, they do not set the bar. The bar is set by Jesus Christ alone. Because every other human being, not only will they fail, they will also set a bar lower than what Jesus is setting. Don't follow man. Even your greatest teachers... Your greatest pastor that you admire. The only person you need to be like is Jesus Christ. Who became man so that he can show us how men can arrange this and can do this. How a human can live in righteousness. So the first application to you is don't look to man to set the bar. Because I will always set a lower bar so I can hit it. But Jesus is setting a bar that I'm going to have to stretch to get to. And to jump over. So first of all, don't look to man to be your idol. To be your hero. To be all of these things. But look to Jesus Christ to tell you how you shall live. Second of all, try and match Jesus' righteousness, his way of life, the way he did ministry, the way he treated people, the way he loved, even in the midst of abuse. Make Jesus the model that you want to follow and that you want to, to reach. Being perfect as your Father that is in heaven is perfect. It's, it's an impossibility, really, the way we look at it. But what Jesus is saying is, if you're a son or a daughter, become like your Father. Become like Him. Stretch. And the word that He uses for perfect is the same word, really, that is used when Jesus dies on the cross. And He says, tetelestoi, it is finished. What he is saying for perfect is to mature enough that as you finish your race, you're looking more and more and more like your heavenly Father, like your Lord Jesus Christ. Completion. Not perfection in degrees as we understand it, but completion of of being who Christ wants you to be, who God calls you to be. Be perfect as your Father that is in heaven Because the world is watching the church. And we either bring glory to God Almighty, or we bring shame to the Lord our God. We cannot claim to be disciples of Jesus and act totally opposite from what Jesus is asking us to act. It can't. That's why so many people say sometimes that the church is full of hypocrites. And it may be true. Because you know what? We're not perfect. But we're redeemed. And we're being transformed from day to day into what Jesus wants us to be. 
We're not claiming a perfection or a righteousness that comes from man. We're claiming a perfection and a righteousness that is imputed on us by God's grace. We are saved by grace and not by our achievements. But it also doesn't mean that we don't live up to the standards that Jesus Christ sets for us. You heard what man said. You hear how they interpret the Word of God. But I say to you, you don't have the same right to behave like unbelievers behave, no matter what they do. Your bar is this. No retribution. No violence from you to another human being. No aggressiveness toward another human being. Almost calling us to submit in our lives to the bad things that sometimes happen in our lives without retribution, without striking back, without getting even, without living according to the standards of the world. Do not. You're not being given permission. And number two, love your neighbor and love your enemies. Love them. Even those that are hard to love. There are people that are hard to love. Let me tell you, those are the people that will make you holier. Those are the people that will challenge your patience. Those are the people that will challenge your ability to forgive. Those are the people that will teach you to love like Jesus loves, not the ones that are easy to get along with. Love your enemy. Love the one that you know don't like you. Love them into the kingdom. Pray for them. Pray that the, their heart will change. But at no point do you have permission to hate them. And at no point do you have permission to pay back or, or, or be aggressive or, or, pay, or, or retribution of any sort. That is not what Jesus is calling us to. He says, you heard that this is what's being said. This is how it's being interpreted. But I say to you that my interpretation and my righteousness, the one that gets us into the kingdom of God, is a higher level of what's in your heart and of how you live your life before the Lord. Amen? Amen. Stand with me.